0: Section 13 of Modeste Mignon by Henri de Balzac Translated by Catherine Prescott Wormley This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 13 of Modeste Mignon by Henri de Balzac read by don w jenkins chapter thirteen a full-length portrait of monsieur de la briere is there in the life of a man a more delightful moment than that of a first rendezvous are the sensations then hidden at the bottom of our hearts and finding their first expression ever renewed can we feel again the nameless pleasures that we felt when like ernest de la briere we looked up our sharpest razors our finest shirt an irreproachable collar and our best clothes we deify the garments associated with that all-supreme moment we weave within us poetic fancies quite equal to those of the woman and the day when either party guesses them they take wings to themselves and fly away are not such things like the flower of wild fruits bittersweet, grown in the heart of a forest the joy of the scant sun-rays the joy as canalis says in the Maiden's song of the plant itself whose eyes unclosing see its own image within its breast such emotions now taking place in la briere tend to show that like other poor fellows for whom life begins in a toil and care he had never yet been loved arriving at havre overnight he had gone to bed at once, like a true coquette, to obliterate all traces of fatigue, and now, after taking his bath, he had put himself into a costume carefully adapted to show him off to the best advantage. This is, perhaps, the right moment to exhibit a full-length portrait of him, if only to justify the last letter that Modeste was still to write to him. Born of a good family in Toulouse, and allied by marriage to the minister who first took him under his protection, Ernest had that air of good breeding which comes of an education begun in the cradle, and the habit of managing business affairs gave him a certain sedateness which was not pedantic, though pedantry is the natural outgrowth of premature gravity. He was of ordinary height, his face, which won upon all who saw him by its delicacy and sweetness, was warm in the flesh-tints, though without colour, and relieved by a small moustache and imperial la marazine. Without this evidence of virility he might have resembled a young woman in disguise, so refined was the shape of his face and the cut of his lips, so feminine the transparent ivory of a set of teeth, regular enough to have seemed artificial add to these womanly points a habit of speech as gentle as the expression of the face as gentle too as the blue eyes with their turkish eyelids and you will readily understand how it was that the minister occasionally called his young secretary mademoiselle de la the full clear forehead well framed by abundant black hair was dreamy and did not contradict the character of the face which was altogether melancholy the prominent arch of the upper eyelid though very beautifully cut overshadowed the glance of the eye and added a physical sadness if we may so call it produced by the droop of the lid over the eyeball this inward doubt or eclipse which is put into language by the word modesty was expressed in his whole person perhaps we shall be able to make his appearance better understood if we say that the logic of design required greater length in the oval of his head more space between the chin, which ended abruptly, and the forehead, which was reduced in height by the way in which the hair grew. The face had, in short, a rather compressed appearance. Hard work had already drawn furrows between the eyebrows, which were somewhat too thick and too near together, like those of a jealous nature. Though Labriere was then slight, he belonged to the class of temperaments which begin, after they are thirty, to take an unexpected amount of flesh." The young man would have seemed to a student of French history a very fair representative of the royal and almost inconceivable figure of Louis the Thirteenth, that historical figure of melancholy modesty, without known cause, pallid beneath the crown, loving the dangers of war and the fatigues of hunting, but hating work, timid with his mistress to the extent of keeping away from her, so indifferent as to allow the head of his friend to be cut off a figure that nothing can explain but his remorse for having avenged his father on his mother. Was he a Catholic hamlet, or merely the victim of incurable disease? But the undying worm which gnawed at the king's vitals was, in Ernest's case, simply distrust of himself. The timidity of a man to whom no woman had ever said, Ah, how I love thee! And, above all, the spirit of self-devotion without an object. After hearing the knell of the monarchy in the fall of his patron's ministry, the poor fellow had next fallen upon a rock covered with exquisite mosses, named Canalis. He was, therefore, still seeking a power to love, and this spaniel-like search for a master gave him outwardly the air of a king who has met with his. This play of feeling, and a general tone of suffering in the young man's face, made it more really beautiful than he was himself aware of for he had always been annoyed to find himself classed by women among the handsome disconsolate a class which has passed out of fashion in these days when every man seeks to blow his own trumpet and put himself in the advance the self-distrustful ernest now rested his immediate hopes on the fashionable clothes he intended to wear he put on for this sacred interview where everything depended on a first impression, a pair of black trousers and carefully polished boots, a sulphur-coloured waistcoat, which left to sight an exquisitely fine shirt with opal buttons, a black cravat, and a small blue surtout out coat, which seemed glued to his back and shoulders by some newly invented process. The ribbon of the Legion of Honour was in his buttonhole. He wore a well-fitting pair of kid gloves of the Florentine bronze colour, and carried his cane and hat in the left hand with a gesture and air that was worthy of the grand monarch, and enabled him to show, as the sacred precincts required, his bare head with the light falling on his carefully arranged hair. He stationed himself before the service began in the church porch from whence he could examine the church and the Christians, more particularly the female Christians, who dipped their fingers in the holy water. An inward voice cried to Modeste as she entered, It is he! That Surtout, and indeed the whole bearing of the young man, were essentially Parisian. The ribbon, the gloves, the cane, the very perfume of his hair were not of Havre. So when La Brière turned about to examine the tall and imposing Madame Letournay, the notary and the bundled-up, expression sacred to women, figure of Modeste, The poor child, though she had carefully tutored herself for the event, received a violent blow on her heart when her eyes rested on his poetic figure, illuminated by the full light of day as it streamed through the open door. She could not be mistaken. A small white rose nearly hid the ribbon of the legion. Would he recognize his unknown mistress muffled in an old bonnet with a double veil? Modeste was so in fear of love's clairvoyance that she began to stoop in her walk like an old woman. "'Wife,' said little Latournay, as they took their seats, "'that gentleman does not belong to Havre. "'So many strangers come here,' answered his wife. "'But,' said the notary, "'strangers never come to look at a church like ours, "'which is less than two centuries old.' Ernest remained in the porch throughout the service "'without seeing any woman who realized his hopes. "'Modeste, on her part, could not control the trembling of her limbs "'until mass was nearly over,' she was in the grasp of a joy that none but she herself could depict at last she heard the footfall of a gentleman on the pavement of the aisle the service over la Brière was making a circuit of the church where no one remained now but the punctiliously pious whom he proceeded to subject to a shrewd and keen analysis ernest noticed that a prayer-book shook violently in the hands of a veiled woman as he passed her as she alone kept her face hidden his suspicions were aroused and then confirmed by modeste's dress which the lover's eye now scanned and noted he left the church with the latournays and followed them at a distance to the rue royale where he saw them enter a house accompanied by modeste whose custom it was to stay with her friends till the hour of vespers after examining the little house which was ornamented with scutcheons he asked the name of the owner and was told that he was monsieur latournay the chief notary in havre as ernest lounged along the rue royale hoping for a glimpse into the house modeste caught sight of him and thereupon declared herself too ill to go to vespers poor ernest thus had his trouble for his pains he dared not wander about Ingville. moreover he made it a point of honour to obey orders and he therefore went back to paris previously writing a letter which francois cochette duly delivered on the morrow with the havre postmark It was the custom of Monsieur and Madame Latournay to dine at the chalet every Sunday when they brought back Modeste after Vespers. So, as soon as the invalid felt a little better, they started for Ingeville, accompanied by Bouchka. Once at home, the happy Modeste forgot her pretended illness and her disguise, and dressed herself charmingly, humming as she came down to dinner. Not is sleeping, heart awaking, lift thine incense to the skies.' Butchka shuddered slightly when he caught sight of her, so changed did she seem to him. The wings of love were fastened to her shoulders. She had the air of a nymph, a psyche. Her cheeks glowed with the divine color of happiness. "'Who wrote the words to which you have put that pretty music?' asked her mother. "'Cannolice, mamma. she answered, flushing rosy red from her throat to her forehead." Canalise cried the dwarf to whom the inflections of the girl's voice and her blush told the only thing of which he was still ignorant. He, that great poet, does he write songs? They are only simple verses, she said, which I have ventured to set to German airs. No, no, interrupted Madame Mignon. The music is your own, my daughter. Modeste, feeling that she grew more and more crimson, went off into the garden, calling Butchka after her. You can do me a great service, she said. Dumai is keeping a secret from my mother and me as to the fortune which my father is bringing back with him. And I want to know what it is. Did not Dumai send Papa, when he first went away, over five hundred thousand francs? Yes. Well, Papa is not the kind of man to stay away four years and only double his capital. It seems he is coming back on a ship of his own, and Dumai's share amounts to almost six hundred thousand francs. There is no need to question Dumai, said Butchka. YOUR FATHER LOST, AS YOU KNOW, ABOUT FOUR MILLIONS WHEN HE WENT AWAY, AND HE HAS DOUBTLESS RECOVERED THEM. HE WOULD, OF COURSE, GIVE me TEN PERCENT OF HIS PROFITS. THE WORTHY MAN ADMITTED THE OTHER DAY HOW MUCH IT WAS, AND MY MASTER AND I THINK THAT IN THAT CASE THE COLONEL'S FORTUNE MUST AMOUNT TO SIX OR SEVEN MILLIONS. Oh, PAPA! cried Modeste, crossing her hands on her breast, and looking up to heaven, TWICE YOU HAVE GIVEN ME LIFE! AH, mademoiselle," SAID BUTCHKA, YOU LOVE A POET. That kind of man is more or less of a narcissus. Will he know how to love you? A phrase-maker, always busy in fitting words together, and must be a bore. Mademoiselle, a poet, is no more poetry than a seed is a flower. Butchka, I never saw so handsome a man. Beauty is a veil which often serves to hide imperfections. He has the most angelic heart of heaven. I pray, God, that you might be right, said the dwarf, clasping his hands, and happy. THAT MAN SHALL HAVE, AS YOU HAVE, A SERVANT IN JEAN BOUCHKA. I WILL NOT BE NOTARY. I SHALL GIVE THAT UP. I SHALL STUDY THE SCIENCES. WHY? AH, oh, mademoiselle, TO TRAIN UP YOUR CHILDREN, IF YOU deign TO MAKE ME THEIR tutor. BUT, OH, IF YOU WOULD ONLY LISTEN TO SOME ADVICE. LET ME TAKE UP THIS MATTER. LET ME LOOK INTO THE LIFE AND HABITS OF THIS MAN. FIND OUT IF HE IS KIND, OR BAD-TEMPERED, OR GENTLE. IF HE COMMANDS THE RESPECT WHICH YOU MERIT IN A HUSBAND if he is able to love utterly, preferring you to everything, even his own talent. "'What does that signify, if I love him?' "'Ah, true,' cried the dwarf. At that instant Madame Mignon was saying to her friends, "'My daughter saw the man she loves this morning.' "'Then it must have been that sulphur waistcoat which puzzled you so, La Tournée, said his wife. "'The young man had a pretty white rose in his buttonhole.' "'Ah!' sighed the mother, "'the sign of recognition.' and he also wore the ribbon of an officer of the legion of honour he is a charming young man but we are all deceiving ourselves modeste never raised her veil and her clothes were huddled on like a beggar woman's and she said she was ill cried the notary but she has taken off her mufflings and is just as well as she ever was it is incomprehensible said de not at all said the notary it is now as clear as day my child said madame mignon to modeste as she came into the room followed by butchka did you see a well-dressed young man at church this morning with a white rose in his buttonhole i saw him said butchka quickly perceiving by everybody's strained attention that modeste was likely to fall into a trap it was Grindot, the famous architect, with whom the town is in treaty for the restoration of the church. He has just come from Paris, and I met him this morning, examining the exterior, as I was on my way to San Adressa. Oh, an architect was he! He puzzled me, said Modeste, for whom Buchka had thus gained time to recover herself. Demai looked askance at Buchka. Modeste, fully worn, recovered her impenetrable composure. Demise distrust was now thoroughly aroused, and he resolved to go to the mayor's office early in the morning and ascertain if the architect had really been in Havre the previous day. Butchka, on the other hand, was equally determined to go to Paris and find out something about Canalis. Gobenheim came to play whist, and by his presence subdued and compressed all this fermentation of feelings. Modeste awaited her mother's bedtime with impatience. She intended to write, but never did so except at night. HERE IS THE LETTER WHICH LOVE DICTATED TO HER WHILE ALL THE WORLD WAS SLEEPING. TO MONSIEUR DE CANALIS. AH, MY FRIEND, MY WELL-BELOVED, WHAT ATROCIOUS FALSEHOODS THOSE PORTRAITS IN THE SHOP-WINDOWS ARE! AND I, WHO MADE THAT HORRIBLE LITHOGRAPH MY JOY, I AM HUMBLED AT THE THOUGHT OF LOVING ONE SO HANDSOME. NO, IT IS IMPOSSIBLE THAT THOSE PARISIAN WOMEN ARE SO STUPID AS NOT TO HAVE SEEN THEIR DREAMS FULFILLED IN YOU. YOU NEGLECTED? YOU UNLOVED? I do not believe a word of all that you have written me about your lonely and obscure life, your hunger for an idol, sought in vain until now. You have been too well loved, monsieur. Your brow, white and smooth as a magnolia-leaf, reveals it. And it is I who must be neglected, for who am I? Ah, why have you called me to life? I felt for a moment as though the heavy burden of the flesh was leaving me. My soul had broken the crystal which held it captive it pervaded my whole being the cold silence of material things had ceased all things in nature had a voice and spoke to me the old church was luminous its arched roof brilliant with gold and azure like those of an italian cathedral sparkled above my head melodies such as the angels sang to martyrs quieting their pains sounded from the organ the rough pavements of havre seemed to my feet a flowery mead the sea spoke to me with a voice of sympathy like an old friend whom i had never truly understood i saw clearly how the roses in my garden had long adored me and bidden me love they lifted their heads and smiled as i came back from church i heard your name melchior chiming in the flower-bells i saw it written on the clouds Yes, yes, I live, I am living thanks to thee, my poet, more beautiful than that cold conventional Lord Byron with a face as dull as the English climate. One glance of thine, thine Orient glance, pierced through my double veil and sent thy blood to my heart, and from thence to my head and feet. Ah, that is not the life our mother gave us. A hurt to thee would hurt me too at the very instant it was given. My life exists by thy thought only." I KNOW NOW THE PURPOSE OF THE DIVINE FACULTY OF MUSIC. THE ANGELS INVENTED IT TO UTTER LOVE. AH, MY Melchior, TO HAVE GENIUS AND TO HAVE BEAUTY IS TOO MUCH. A MAN SHOULD BE MADE TO CHOOSE BETWEEN THEM AT HIS BIRTH. WHEN I THINK OF THE TREASURES OF TENDERNESS AND AFFECTION WHICH YOU HAVE GIVEN ME, AND MORE ESPECIALLY FOR THE LAST MONTH, I ASK MYSELF IF I DREAM. NO, BUT YOU HIDE SOME MYSTERY. WHAT WOMAN CAN YIELD YOU UP TO ME AND NOT DIE? "'Ah! jealousy has entered my heart with love, love in which I could not have believed! How could I have imagined so mighty a conflagration? And now, strange and inconceivable revulsion! I would rather you were ugly! What follies I committed after I came home! The yellow dahlias reminded me of your waistcoat. The white roses were my loving friends. I bowed to them with a look that belonged to you, like all that is of me.' THE VERY COLOUR OF THE GLOVES, MOLDED TO HANDS OF A GENTLEMAN, YOUR STEP ALONG THE NAVE, ALL, ALL, IS SO PRINTED IN MY MEMORY THAT SIXTY YEARS HENCE I SHALL SEE THE VARIOUS TRIFLES OF THIS DAY OF DAYS, THE COLOUR OF THE ATMOSPHERE, THE RAY OF SUNSHINE THAT FLICKERED ON A CERTAIN PILLAR, I SHALL HEAR THE PRAYER YOUR STEP INTERRUPTED, I SHALL INHALE THE INCENSE OF THE ALTAR, Forever I shall feel above our heads the priestly hands that blessed us both as you passed by me at the closing benediction. The good Abbe Marceline married us then. The happiness above that of the earth which I feel in this new world of unexpected emotions can only be equaled by the joy of telling it to you, of sending it back to him who poured it into my heart with the lavishness of the sun itself. No more veils, no more disguises, my beloved come back to me oh come back soon with joy i now unmask you have no doubt heard of the house of mignon in havre well i am through an irreparable misfortune its sole heiress but you are not to look down upon us descendant of an avergan knight the arms of the mignon de la bastille will do no dishonour to those of canalis we bear gules on a bend sable four bezant's or, quarterly four crosses patriarchal or a cardinal's hat as crest, and the fioci for supports. Dear, I will be faithful to our motto, Una fides, unus dominus, the true faith, and one only master. Perhaps, my friend, you will find some irony in my name. After all that I have done, and all that I herein avow, I am named Modest. Therefore I have not deceived you by signing O. de Est M., neither have i misled you about our fortune it will amount i believe to the sum which rendered you so virtuous i know that to you money is a consideration of small importance therefore i speak of it without reserve let me tell you how happy it makes me to give freedom of action to our happiness to be able to say when the fancy for travel takes us come let us go in a comfortable carriage sitting side by side without a thought of money happy in short to tell the king I have the fortune which you require in your peers. Thus, Modest Mignon can be of service to you, and her gold will have the noblest of uses. As to your servant herself, you did see her once at her window. Yes, the fairest daughter of Eve the Fair was indeed your unknown damoiselle, but how little the Modeste of to-day resembles her of that long past era. That one was in her shroud. This one, have I made you know it, has received from you the life of life love pure and sanctioned the love of my father now returning rich and prosperous will authorize has raised me from its powerful yet childlike hand from the grave in which i slept you have wakened me as the sun wakens the flowers the eyes of your beloved are no longer those of the little modest so daring in her ignorance no they are dimmed with the sight of happiness and the lids close over them Today i tremble lest i can never deserve my fate The king has come in his glory. My lord has now a subject who asks pardon for the liberties she has taken, like the gambler with loaded dice after cheating Monsieur de la Gramont. My cherished poet, I will be thy mignon, happier far than the mignon of Goethe, for thou wilt leave me in mine own land, in thy heart. Just as I write this pledge of our betrothal, a nightingale in the Vilquin Park answers for thee ah tell me quick that his note so pure so clear so full which fills my heart with joy and love like an annunciation does not lie to me my father will pass through paris on his way from marseilles the house of mongonod with whom he corresponds will know his address go to him my melchior tell him that you love me but do not try to tell him how i love you let that be for ever between ourselves and god i my dear one am about to tell everything to my mother her heart will justify my conduct She will rejoice in our secret poem, so romantic, human, and divine in one. You have the confession of the daughter. You must now obtain the consent of the Comte de la Bastille, father of your Modeste. P.S. Above all, do not come to Havre without having first obtained my father's consent. If you love me, you will not fail to find him on his way through Paris. What are you doing up at this hour, Mademoiselle Modeste? said the voice of Dumas at her door. "'Writing to my father,' she answered. "'Did you not tell me you should start in the morning?' Demais had nothing to say to that, and he went to bed, while Modeste wrote another long letter, this time to her father. On the morrow, Francois Cochet, terrified at seeing the Havre postmark on the envelope which Ernest had mailed the night before, brought her young mistress the following letter, and took away the one which Modeste had written. "'To Mademoiselle O. de S. De M.' My heart tells me that you were the woman so carefully veiled and disguised, and seated between Monsieur and Madame Latournay, who have but one child, a son. Ah, my love, if you have only a modest station without distinction, without importance, without money even, you do not know how happy that would make me. You ought to understand me by this time. Why will you not tell me the truth? I am no poet, except in heart, through love, through you." ah what power of affection is in me to keep me here in this hotel instead of mounting to ingeville which i can see from my windows will you ever love me as i love you to leave havre in such uncertainty i am not punished for loving you as if i had committed a crime but i obey you blindly let me have a letter quickly for if you have been mysterious i have returned you mystery for mystery and i must at last throw off my disguise show you the poet that i am and abdicate my borrowed glory This letter made Modeste terribly uneasy. She could not get back the one which Francois had carried away before she came to the last words, whose meaning she now sought by reading them again and again. But she went to her own room and wrote an answer in which she demanded an immediate explanation. End of Section 13 Read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California, shaggybark.blogspot.com